welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about the importance of STI testing. Jamie Campbell, the voice of the Blue Jays, has a story to share with you about his dating life and how that led to a devastating diagnosis. Also, what is borderline personality disorder and how difficult is it for those who live with it and those who live with someone who has it? We're also going to be talking about adult ADHD and a new online forum that you might be interested in. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, you're probably hearing a lot about artificial intelligence, or AI. Before the rise of chat GPT, half of Canadians, 49%, agreed that products and services that use AI make them nervous. Does AI make you nervous when it comes to the use of in healthcare, how about that use of AI in healthcare? What does that even mean? What is it all about? But Canadians do have a distrust, and that has grown, and it continues to be hotly debated in the news, with many raising the concerns around privacy and losing the personal human connection necessary when navigating delicate healthcare matters. Well, a Canadian digital healthcare company is investing in AI to bridge the doctor-patient trust gap. Well Health Technologies is a leading healthcare company of which one in four doctors across Canada touch their platform. Joining me on the line is Hamed Shabazi, who is a founder at Well Health Technologies. Good evening, Hamid. How are you? Um, Great, Maureen. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, So interested in this. It's such, I mean, I wonder if a lot of people are thinking about artificial intelligence as it relates to uh, healthcare. And I have questions about cybersecurity. And and of course, privacy is a big thing for me being a nurse. Um, Tell me first, how does AI or artificial intelligence apply in healthcare? Yeah, great, great question. I mean, uh, AI, as as we've seen, uh, you know, with ChatGPT is a groundbreaking technology, but, you know, it's actually been around for quite some time, and there's different types of AI. There's sort of this old school, you know, machine learning type of AI that a lot of people call narrow uh, AI, which which is sort of designed to accomplish a narrower task, like like voice recognition uh, or recommending products to online shoppers, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. and and then there's the new sort of general or stronger type of AI, and 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 that's kind of what we've been seeing: the AI that's actually able to 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 generate you know content and pictures and and all that kind of stuff. And today in healthcare, um, a lot of doctors uh, are using um, you know just just software to to help them even with transcription, you know, just just to take the content of a conversation and be able to capture it for them. Uh, a lot of these voice dictation services use AI. Uh, also, hospitals use AI uh, to to help them with their with with their data management to some degree. Uh, there's a lot of promise in using AI just for pattern recognition, just helping people spot things that normally would be very difficult to to find because you know they're kind of needle in a haystack type problems. So, um, I I actually think AI. Is is an incredible opportunity in, in, in healthcare, and I'm really happy to talk to you about it tonight. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I, I understand that a lot of doctors transcribe their notes through voice recognition and um, it types it out for you and that saves time. I, I guess maybe some people out there are wondering if AI will replace physicians in the future. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I don't think it's going to be um, uh, any, you know, I, I don't see that in, in, in my lifetime and uh, in, in really quite, I, I personally don't see it in, in, in even the next sort of 60 to 100 years. I, I think uh, I think it's because, you know, health is so important to us. And I think even if the, perp- the, the capabilities of a machine become far more advanced than that of a doctor, the role of a doctor oftentimes is, is to just let us know that we're going to be okay, to put that sort of hand on our shoulder and, and, and guide us through uh, you know, the, the maze that is healthcare, the journey that is healthcare. And I think uh, doctors are going to become much better supported through AI. But just like you have a, a, a pilot in a plane right now, you know, planes don't really need pilots to fly. Uh, they can do that just fine on their own. But I, I don't think many of us would want to be in a plane that doesn't have a pilot um, <laughs> out of concern about the technology breaking down. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think for now that's sort of very far away from, from reality. But I know a lot of people are thinking about it. Yes. And so how, um, you know, it, first of all, I'm thinking it's not just physicians or doctors. It's, it's nurse practitioners. It's nurses. It's respiratory therapists. It's physiotherapists. It's pharmacists that artificial intelligence can support. And I think that's the important word here is support healthcare so that it makes it easier, more efficient, simpler, faster, because as we know, even with documentation, you know, that is an onerous task for uh, many healthcare providers. But how exactly is AI being used today besides the transcription? Are there other ways and should we be concerned about privacy? You know, I think we should always be concerned about privacy, especially because, you know, our, our, our healthcare information you know, while it can change over time, it, it is very unique to us. And and it's not like a credit card, uh, you know, PAN number that can be, you know, changed if, if, if there's, a, if there's a, you know, uh, unauthorized disclosure of, of your of your credit card number somewhere and you've got a new credit card number and everything's okay. Um, once our he- health information is breached without our consent and it's, and it's uh, out in the dark web or somewhere where we don't want it to be, it can cause problems for us because because we can't change our health information, and so what I what I what I hear and feel a lot about is this anxiety about health information being used without someone's consent, and I think that's a real uh, that's a real concern. Uh, but what I'm hearing more and more uh, lately, I think as a result of people just seeing uh, the potential behind generative AI through services like ChatGPT or Bard, is 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 just how um, fundamentally helpful this technology can be. And I think people people are starting to want their data to work for them. They just want to be able to make sure that they're the ones providing that consent, that there should be some kind of unambiguous ability to say, yes, I want my data working for me, as opposed to someone, you know, using some, some very complex terms and conditions to, to deduct uh, th- that, that ability to use your data. And so uh, I think we're, we're heading in a place where more and more people will want insights from their data. And, and as long as incentive models are right and people who, who allow access to their uh, data get, get, get something 
valuable in return for that. I, I think this could have a happy story for Canadians. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you say um, people want to utilize their data, what, what is the typical Canadian hoping to get from that data? What are, what are the questions that they want answered? Is it that they're contributing to a database and that that would help, um, you know, finding a cure for cancer, for example? Um, or how does it, how does AI apply typically to, you know, somebody who goes into their doctor, they have hypertension, they might have type two diabetes and, you know, how is it that they can benefit from AI? Well, I, I think a lot of that isn't there quite just yet, but I, I think as more and more data is is combined and and machines get a chance to uh, legally review and, and crunch that data, they can start to find patterns and they can start to, uh, you know, make some inferences and, and, and provide some insights. And they can say, hey, look, people that did this, this, and this had a 20 or 30% chance uh, of an increased incidence of this disease. And, and you kind of start to fit within that pattern. You know, there's all kinds of patterns out there. There's all kinds of data out there. There's data that's coming from uh, your blood tests. There's data coming from your clinical notes that your doctors write. There's data coming from your user-generated devices like your Apple Watch and how many steps you, 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 you take every single day. All this data right now... Um, you know, creates a lot of, you know, narrow sort of insights for us. But as we start to combine those, they can become very powerful in identifying certain patterns. And I think we're starting to already see some of that stuff pop up in our, in our um, Apple Watch. If you have kind of one of the latest generations of the Apple Watch, it'll start to tell you if, if, um, if it sees kind of a different trend. And I don't know how much AI they're using or not using, but we can expect to see more and more of this type of thing is, is, is to, you know, of these insights. And I think that's where people are excited. That's, that's yeah, really I, what I'm seeing and hearing. Well, my guest is Hamid Shabazi. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Well Health Technologies. We're talking about artificial intelligence in healthcare, and we're specifically learning about that there's potential for health prevention, better health for Canadians. But, you know, uh, devil's advocate here, I um, and thank you for staying on the line, Hamid. Um, what about those people who fear that some, the government is following them? They don't want their data to be a part of this. They don't want to go to the doctor for fear that they're, they're going to be tracked. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, that that's a that's a real concern, uh, especially if um, you know that's the that's the type of thing that you're generally concerned about. And and there are people that don't use social media for that reason, and are generally averse to um, you know providing their data to different services. And 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 you got to understand that there's a lot of good reason to be fearful because of all the data breaches out there. And the more people you give your data to, the better the chance that it could be. Um, you know, breached, and it's it's not just you know m- you know mistrust or 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 or, or you know concerns about uh, the person whom I gave the data to uh, on on you know uh, on on correct pretenses, and you know they're they're not misusing my data. They're doing exactly what they said they were going to do, but they're holding my data. So guess what? When data breaches happen, uh, that data can flow out, and and someone else can can misuse it. So I think I think there's a lot of those concerns, but but there is just general mistrust as well that that the, the data will be uh, shared uh, 
you know, correctly or even incorrectly with someone who's going to use it against us, or uh, it, could, it, could, it could end up, you know, hurting us from an insurance perspective, or um, we just, you know, there's just some people that also just don't want uh, a lot of their information floating out there because uh, they're, they're, they're just averse to it. You know, that, 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 is, that is the way they, they live their life. So it, there's a broad spectrum of Canadians and how they feel about their health care and how they feel about the most fundamentally important information to them. So um, one must understand all these and, and the laws of the land need to incorporate and allow those people to be in control of their data. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've seen many patients in my career and I've met people who don't have a passport. They don't have a credit card. They pay everything with cash. They store gold bullion in their basements. <laughs> um, you know, they have this fear that the government is invading. Then there's the other side, the people who think like myself, who I think, well, if they got my health data, I mean, with all due respect, I don't, you know, perhaps God forbid there's something you know, for me in the future that I wouldn't want people to know or people, you know, don't share some of their diagnoses at times because for a number of different reasons. Um, Is it actually something Canadians should be concerned about? I mean, how big of a problem is this hacking of healthcare data and, and what are people doing with it? I mean, are they look, are the hackers looking for data sets or are they looking to find out, you know, a a famous person's diagnosis? I mean, what, what is it all about? Um, Look, I mean, I, I think there's, I, I think there are definitely concerns out there and I think there should be because healthcare tends to be, the most um, uh, breached uh, sector out there. Now, some people believe that that's the case because there is more compulsory notification that's required when healthcare data goes missing as opposed to other uh, data data going missing because of, again, like how important that data really is. Um, so so I, I think I think there, there, there is, you know, concern uh, and, and there should be a lot of concern, but I do think a lot of the concern you know, getting beyond just the concept of being hacked, you know, this, this issue of my, is my data out there? I think that's somewhat generational too. Obviously you have young people that don't want their data out there and are concerned as well, but, but young people, younger people are more used to having more of their data out there and exposed. And, and, and I think, um, and, and, and a lot of people even just share, uh, uh, you know, things about themselves uh, out there, you know, in terms of, you know, things that are even medically oriented associated with them. But I would say in general, as, as you know, um, millennials and Gen Z, you know, uh, grow older, we're going we're gonna to see, you know, the general attitudes changing over time. And we're going to see more and more people wanting to get value out of their data as opposed to just wanting it locked up and out of sight and out of mind. But, but you know, there's just such a, such a diverse array of opinions and thoughts about this. Some of it's cultural, some of it's generational, um, you know, and, and I think the laws of the land need to put people in charge of, 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 of their data. And I think that's what they generally do. Um, while there are custodial rights to data for people that are in the business of, of, of managing healthcare, you know, uh, physical healthcare, uh, you know, corporations and, and, and organizations, um, you know, data should be owned and controlled by the consumer um, itself when it's when it's you know provided or shared on an identified basis. Mm-hmm. 
Very interesting. I did not realize that healthcare was, um, you know, people were after healthcare data. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I did not realize that at all. I do think there's a lot of oversharing a little bit too much oversharing of people's private mm-hmm. and personal lives. And, and then on the other, on the flip side, I think, are, are people actually interested in what you had for lunch and, you know, the troubles that you're going through? I mean, I, I wonder what it is about the human psyche that they have this need to share uh, so much. And I think sometimes maybe later down the road, some people are going to regret some of that sharing. Anyway, um, Hamid, thank you so much. Very interesting information and certainly raised my awareness about AI and healthcare, which I've probably been using for a while and, uh, and wasn't aware. I really appreciate you coming on the program and sharing this information with us. It's been a pleasure. And we're looking forward to playing a positive role in, in helping people get the very best of our healthcare ecosystem and helping healthcare providers uh, be better supported through the use of AI. You know, we do have a crisis in the country and we do need to amplify doctors. Otherwise, it's going to be hard to meet the growing demand for healthcare services. So uh, it was wonderful to talk to you this evening. Thank you. Well, picture this. I want to set it up for you. Your marriage ends. You decide to get out on the dating game. You, which is, takes a fair bit of courage in and of itself. You do the responsible thing and you go to the doctor and you get tested for sexually transmitted infections. And then you get a call from your doctor and you think, ooh, oh my gosh, do I have an STI? No, you have a far more devastating diagnosis. Well, that's exactly what happened to one of the voices of the Blue Jays, Jamie Campbell. And he is on the line sharing his powerful and very meaningful life-disrupted story about living with the most common leukemia in adults. Good evening, Jamie. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I am feeling fantastic right about now. That is fantastic. So great to have you on the line. You're well-known in Major League Baseball. I have to say, full disclosure, I'm a Red Sox fan. (laughs) (laughs) What do you have, Eastern Roots or something? (laughs) But of course. Um, (laughs) Yes, I do. Um, But I do wish the best for the Blue Jays. (laughs) Um, Anyway. Uh, Jamie Campbell, lovely to have you on the line here. Um, So I gave a little bit of a background of of what uh, was the beginning of your story, of your life interrupted or disrupted. Um, Mm -hmm. For the listeners, if you don't mind sharing what what this was all like for you when you went to the doctor to do the responsible thing before you went out on the dating scene. Yeah, I thought it was a responsible thing to do. I figured if I was uh, going to be out there, I should probably make sure I was going out there with a clean track record. So uh, about three days later, when I received a phone call, looked down at my phone and saw that it was my family physician on the line. Um, I had a bit of a curious response to that phone call because I thought to myself, 
I was really only going for confirmation of um, not having an STD. Uh, uh-huh. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, how in the world would I have gotten something like this if I haven't gone out into the dating world yet? And uh, lo and behold, the disappointing news was, um, as strange as it sounds, is that I didn't have what I thought I had. Instead, she was calling to tell me that I had CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It must have come as a complete and utter shock to you. Just the word leukemia. It's Before we get into the specific type. Word. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's of course. a very frightening word. And, and uh, I remember the moment so well. I remember the date, January 11th, 2021. I know exactly where I was in my house. Uh, it was your average Ontario winter day. I had little planned because I'd already dropped the kids off at school. And, you know, suddenly this word is ringing in my ear. And I just, um, I, I know for the first hour or so as I was making my way to an emergency room just to get the um, uh, the uh, diagnosis confirmed, um, I knew nothing about what I was dealing with. All I knew was that I had quote-unquote leukemia, and uh, to uh-huh. say I was frightened would be uh, an understatement. Absolutely, and, and I think most people know leukemia is associated with cancer. Um, your blood and uh, bone marrow cancer, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, tell the listeners what exactly that is. Well, I'm a sports broadcaster, specifically a baseball broadcaster, so um, I will do my best to simplify it as much as I possibly can. But uh, in essence, I have um, cancerous white blood cells that are produced in my bone marrow, um, and they are chronic and therefore somewhat relentless. Uh, And if not held in check, though incurable, uh, they can cause me an awful lot of trouble. So um, at this point, I'm on some marvelous uh, medication, marvelous treatment. Uh, But it, it took me a while to understand exactly what my leukemia diagnosis, CLL, was in comparison to all the other diagnoses that are out there. Um, and it took me also a little while to learn that mine was extremely treatable. Uh, my particular kind was very aggressive. Um, I was told that I would need treatment within a year to two years of my diagnosis. And lo and behold, 14 months in there, I was getting treated. So, uh, um, yeah, I've I've learned a fair bit about about what I'm dealing with, but uh, there's an interesting um, refrain that I think a lot of people get when they receive a, uh, a diagnosis like mine, and that is don't Google too much about what you're dealing with because, you know, it can, it can boggle your mind trying to figure out um, exactly what it is you're dealing with, and I, and I chose to take that route. I, I didn't spend a whole lot of time researching my particular form of leukemia. And that's probably a very wise thing. You know, nobody wants to read varying life expectancies and, um, you know, the incidence rates, you know, that it's, I mean, I understand CLL is, um, has a higher incidence people over the age of 60. You're not quite 60, um, you know, and so there's so many different things that you can 
read that are not necessarily accurate or correct, or some of it is is research. So I I uh, applaud you <laughs> for not yeah. uh, getting into that, into the weeds, because it can mm-hmm. certainly. I mean, you can also find whatever you want um, on the World Wide mm-hmm. Web, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was a devastating diagnosis, terribly disappointing. Having to share that with your friends and, and family, and having this diagnosis, if you mm-hmm. will, of a, a blood cancer. And um, mm-hmm. but what has life been like for you? Um, life's since been that life's been fascinating since it's been it's been. And I heard somebody say, somebody who also had leukemia, that it can be the strangest blessing. And mm-hmm. when they said this to me, I was very early in my diagnosis. But what that means, because it now applies to me, is that you just so quickly come to the realization of the fragility of the life you're living. And mm-hmm. although, although I appreciated that thought prior to my diagnosis, I don't think I had fully processed it. And now... I spend moments really investing in them and I see things a little differently. And I love to describe to people that um, prior to my diagnosis, I used to go on walks in our neighborhood with both of my children. um, And they all felt very much the same for many, many years. And the first one I went on with them after diagnosis felt differently Mm -hmm. and I saw it differently and I see things differently. And it's almost as if when your um, mortality comes into question, uh, the world shines a little brighter. You, you start seeing things that perhaps you were missing. And, um, and that's been the case for me. I, I must admit, I, I relish every day now, and I don't take them for granted. I don't sit around thinking I'm going to have 15,000 more of these things when I know I'm not going to. So uh, uh, a blessing in the weirdest possible way. Mm-hmm. I know I, I had a patient who was diagnosed with terminal cancer, a, a terminal cancer stage four metastatic cancer. And um, they said that they had never appreciated all that they had in life. And one of the best Christmases they'd ever had was the one after they were diagnosed. I, I hear this from a lot of patients of mine once they get a devastating diagnosis um, such as cancer or uh, traumatic injury occurs. So what is life? You started all of this out because you wanted to start dating. Um, so <laughs> what is dating like <laughs> with this diagnosis of cancer? You know, it hasn't been um, much of an issue, and I should um, I should say that I, I am no longer in that world. I did successfully meet somebody. I'm in a loving relationship and I'm thrilled with that. Very happy. Um, but at the time, um, uh, it, 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 it wasn't a difficult thing to, uh, to admit to some of the people I was going out with, um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, on the day, uh, that I was diagnosed, I had just started seeing somebody, Um, and you know, I phoned them immediately just to let them know. And it, it rocked them fairly significantly since, uh, since one of their very good friends was dealing with a very similar diagnosis. So, um, it's not the easiest thing to announce to somebody you're, um, you're seeing, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 
I, I guess, you know, dating in your 40s and 50s is a lot different than doing it when you're a teenager or in your early 20s. And that, uh-huh. uh, you know, we tend, to, we tend to know at this age exactly who we are, exactly what we want, um, exactly what makes us happy. And we don't mess around with hiding things and, and, and lying and being deceptive. We come right out and say how we feel, which is very much the case for me. And so uh-huh. it, wasn't, it wasn't difficult for me to, to be very, very forthright with the people I was dealing with. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of patients who obviously uh, have suffered with a lot of different types of diagnoses, and this is in in all different ages, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And, you know, they often say, how can I go out into the dating world? You know, what I feel broken, I feel less than I feel like they're not going to want me after they find out. Um, Mm. So I think that's great advice um you know i always say they're the wrong person then (laughs) if they're not going to accept you um for a a diagnosis you know then that's very that's very true that's very true and i I might also add that the person that i am with now probably enjoys the fact that i attack life as vigorously as i do Mm -hmm. so you know in essence dating somebody with a diagnosis like mine um as described earlier, is is being with somebody who just sees the world a little, uh, a little differently. And uh, you know, in my case, it's full of bright lights and and shiny moments. And and sometimes it's it's nice to be with a person that thinks that way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you sound. Great. I'll be honest. Well, you are a sportscaster, <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe you're trained to sound great. But you know, how do you feel? Do you feel okay uh, on the daily? Um, I know medications have side effects, and you know what what is day to day life like. And I, and I really appreciate the optimism and the positive attitude. I think that's awesome. Well, the worst I felt, Maureen, was um, right around as predicted the fourteen month period when my uh, white blood cells had increased um, and my uh, lymph nodes had had grown substantially and and the progression of the leukemia was at a a fairly significant point where i required treatment and i was fatigued and um i was uh i was pretty weary at that time and um oddly enough it hit right around the time of opening day 2022 and there were a few days where i wondered if i was going to be able to get out of bed in time to Mm -hmm. to make it to to work for the start of the baseball season but um uh, so that's that's been the worst of it to this point. The treatment that I went on in March 22 um, was was fantastic, um, and within weeks, my blood levels had sort of receded to a, a, an almost normal level. And and now I deal, as you described, I deal with the side effects of the treatment. Um, and I have little ones that I deal with every day. Most of them involve muscle tension around my head and jaw. Um, you know, the odd bout of rather severe diarrhea. Um, but, but all things as I like to tell people that I am willing to live with if it means living period. Uh So, um, that's, that's just something I assume people who have cancer, in my case, leukemia, just have to, uh, to learn to deal with. Jamie Campbell, one of the voices of the Blue Jays, is my guest. He's talking about how his life was disrupted by a 
diagnosis of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Jamie. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you being with us. I know it's late where you are. Well, I can't um, believe I've spent so much time with a noted Red Sox fan. <laughs> I, I don't normally spend this kind of valuable time in that respect. How lucky you are. <laughs> You're really lucky. <laughs> anyway, um, so tell me, I know you've given us a few tidbits of your Silver Linings playbook, and that's um, how you utilize that to optimize your mental and physical health, which is so important, not only for any everybody, but especially for people with a diagnosis of chronic uh, lymphocytic leukemia, like you have, or cancer. Yeah, I never realized just how important things like nutrition, things like physical fitness, all of this was laid out to me uh, at the time of my diagnosis. Luckily, I'd been uh, paying rapt attention to it for many, many years, uh, but I I, uh, I really started focusing on um, things I wasn't normally doing. For example, every three weeks I go and get vitamin C therapy. And this was not the recommendation of my hematologist or even family physician. I just decided to do a little research into the things that may or may not be able to fortify me. Um, and that is one thing I have definitely committed to. I eat uh, organically as often as I possibly can, a high-protein diet um, with lots of fresh organic juice every day just to build up uh, you know, this now 56-year-old body as best as I possibly can. And I work out vigorously, which um, you know, can make for uh, a long summer given that uh, I work out, have a couple of kids that I'm raising, and have to do seemingly every single day a Blue Jays broadcast and it gets harder and harder as you may know as you get older but uh, you know I, uh, I I made it a personal goal of mine to to build myself up physically and even mentally uh, to prepare for whatever battle is going to lie ahead with this uh, diagnosis of mine. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important message. You know, I wanted to talk to you a bit about, uh, and I love this, something that you did during COVID. You know, a lot of people complained. A lot of people became Facebook physicians. A lot of people, uh, you know, were uh, just outrageous and focused on the negative during the COVID. Mm -hmm. But you did something extremely positive because human contact is so important. Tell me a bit about that. Well, um, you know, I've been broadcasting Blue Jays games for many, many years, and I have always known that there is a significant portion of our audience uh, that is, you know, well over the age of 60. Uh, baseball is mm -hmm. one of those generational sports, and you may have, you know, received your love of the game from a father or mother or a grandparent. Um, and I recognize that I would often go places and young people would come up to me and sometimes the first thing they would say is, my grandmother loves you. And, um, and, you know, and my thinking is that baseball to so many people can be like a really good friend that you rely upon to be there for you every night because it uh -huh. pretty well is now uh, with every single game televised. And, you know, in many respects, there's so many seniors who who aren't that physically active and they, and they look forward to just sitting down at night and either listening to the game on the radio or watching it on TV. And I knew that in COVID times, these people 
would be more isolated than the rest of us. Um, uh-huh. And I made a pledge on social media to, you know, to call as many people as I possibly can. I kept this huge notebook full of names and phone numbers. And ultimately, over about a two and a half to three month span, I think I phoned and conversed with over 1,200 people in every single corner of this country. And it was, you know, there are some people who have come back to me and said, you spoke with my father, you spoke with my mother, you spoke with my grandparents. And they think that I was doing them some kind of a favor when the, you know, the rich return I got from it was engaging with people that I would never have normally had an opportunity to do that with. And it just filled me with, with just wonders and, and, you know, I'm the one that ultimately benefited from it. Absolutely. That is so amazing. We only have about 30 seconds left. You're also deriving purpose from auctioning off your scorecards and baseball memorabilia to raise money for small women's shelters across Canada, including Medicine Hat, mm-hmm. Alberta, and it's mm-hmm. some in BC as well. How can people get in touch with that? And honestly, we got to go. <laughs> Best way is to just follow me on Twitter, Snet Campbell, and I'll be doing it for every homestand. Jamie, thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you. Wishing you the best health possible. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Maureen. It's been a pleasure. We're going to focus on the brain and mental health. And we're going to be talking about borderline personality disorder, which is as common as bipolar disorder and Alzheimer's, but it doesn't get the attention that other mental illnesses get. We're also going to be talking about mental health and aging because I think that is so critically important. But right now, joining me on the line is Dr. Karash Adelati. He is the Medical Director and CEO at Elumine Centers for Brain Excellence. Good evening, Dr. Adelati. Hi, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, nice to talk to you. It's been a while. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you yourself? That's great. I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for asking. Thanks so much for joining me. You are the guru of uh, brain health, mental health. It's so important. And as we destigmatize this condition, I hope, um, because I think that prevents people from getting the right help. Um, you know, we're learning more about the brain and, and certainly at Elamind Centers for Brain Excellence, you do lots of uh, different diagnostic testing and uh, treatments and um, thinking outside of the box for patients as well. So it's not kind of your traditional clinic, which is awesome. But tonight I wanted to talk about borderline personality disorder. Um, I've had a a few patients in my clinical practice who either have a child that has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or have been in a relationship with somebody with BPD or borderline personality disorder. For the listeners, um, would you mind explaining exactly what borderline personality disorder is? So, Maureen, borderline personality is uh, a lot more prevalent than people think in, uh, in Canada and the U.S. At least a couple of percent. That's what um, you know. The prevalence is, and it is a personality disorder, as it suggests. So, personality disorders oftentimes start forming in early childhood uh, and fully developed by you know by kind of late adolescence, early adulthood. And borderline personality is a 
diagnosis, the mental health diagnosis made by mental health professionals. And uh, it involves a number of uh, uh, symptoms that we uh, see commonly occurring in people suffering from this condition. Um, a lot of uh, times we see people having difficulty with emotion regulation, which is what probably you've seen in some of your um, patients. Uh, they have difficulty with a sense of who they are. So they have identity disturbance, um, difficulty with impulsivity in some of the patients with this condition. Um, relationships are oftentimes uh, one of the biggest and probably the boldest aspect because um, they don't have very stable relationships. Oftentimes, uh, they go from one end of idealizing somebody to the other end of completely hating that same person. Um, in, you know, in psychiatry, work, we sometimes call this splitting uh, of the staff that are working with someone suffering from that. They have hmm. a, very, um, a very real uh, sense that they may be abandoned. Huge fear of abandonment commonly involved feelings of emptiness. And one of the things that worries uh, mental health clinicians is uh, self behaviors and suicidal ideation. And these are the things that uh, we take very seriously. Oftentimes, uh, we want to make sure that it's not just a gesture uh, that is being addressed properly if it's not just a gesture. Either way, we do look at it. Um, so those are some of the common things that we see in someone with borderline personality. Mm-hmm. From my understanding, it's a serious mental illness. And I think personality disorder makes a little, for lack of a better term, makes a little light of it. Um, it may not describe it um, to be what it is. And, and I know that um, oftentimes people with BPD are high-functioning in particular settings, like in the workplace, but their private lives might be a mess or in turmoil. Um, You mentioned about the issues regulating emotions and thoughts, and, you know, this can also lead to reckless behavior and really can wreak havoc on relationships. And and that is, that couldn't be any, any, any more true, uh, Maureen. Uh, So there's an attachment component that comes with borderline personality disorder. And, you know, you may, you may see your coworker as completely normal, but when that person goes home to someone they, uh, you know, somewhat feel attached to, um, the emotional dysregulation oftentimes presents itself with the smallest trigger. And, of course, you know, the, the, that, that's one of the reasons why relationships um, are oftentimes unstable. Um, and of course, you know, you add to that impulsivity, uh, and you can see how uh, problematic this could be in a relationship. One of the things that we oftentimes see also as a comorbid condition uh, are other mental health conditions, uh, such as depression, anxiety, and substance use uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we say emotion regulation issues, it's, it's very soft. When these people go home and they're working fine at the office, whatever, but when they go home and they're triggered, it is explosive. It is abusive. It comes out of nowhere. Is that a fair enough statement? 
Well, it, it it can end end up in a rage, actually. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I wasn't I wasn't trying to minimize the impact. No, I know you weren't. You didn't. Say, but, yeah. You didn't make up emotion regulation. <laughs> they did. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <there's>... the they, <laughs> the proverbial they. Yeah, <laughs> it's so described in medical books as emotion dysregulation. It's it's soft, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a there's of course a range as well to this emotion regulation problem. You can go from um, you know someone being angry to uh, going in absolute rage, and this is one of the things we see in borderline personality disorder. They, you know, emotion regulation involves being able to apply the brakes. So somebody says something to you, you know. Um, and it may be triggering or it may not be really that triggering, right? You, you, you can apply uh, the brakes in the frontal lobe of your brain and say, hey, you know, okay, let's, let's talk about this. This wasn't appropriate or something like that, right? In someone who suffers from borderline personality disorder, they go from zero to 100 very quickly. Uh-huh. It doesn't even give them an opportunity to reach out to, uh, you know, their rationale or their, you know, any logical discussion. They just go from zero to 100. And, you know, what's interesting is that um, their amygdala, uh, which is basically a little almond-shaped structure in the brain and the side of the brain, uh, which is very involved in regulating emotions, um, is oftentimes uh, affected, basically. It's smaller than expected. And so, what we see is that the person just cannot apply the brakes. It goes really quickly to 100 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've all known people like that. Um, just speaking of the terms, that, that borderline in the borderline personality disorder, historically that meant somewhere between, you know, they're, they're on the borderline between psychosis and neuroses and neurosis. Um, is my understanding how what are the causes of borderline personality disorder so there are um you know obviously i mentioned uh, one part of uh, the brain that might be involved you know the size of the that size might be smaller and that might be genetically uh factored in but there's uh, definitely environmental factors involved uh, a lot of times um these individuals have been a victim of emotional uh, or uh, sexual, physical abuse. They may have been exposed to uh, a lot of stress as a child. So borderline upbringing, um, so to speak, uh, having been uh, to neglect by their parents, uh, that's another thing that we oftentimes see. Uh, and then also being exposed to uh, extremes of uh, mental health condition environment. So, you know, if you have a parent who is, and this is no way or shape to put the you know blame on the parent, but you know if someone is uh, usually uh, depressed, they they really can't pay attention to their child, right? So the mm-hmm. neglect comes in. Uh, oftentimes, uh, these individuals uh, miss parts of their developmental um, kind of steps. Uh, you know, think of like someone who is in. Um, a very early stage of development in terms of emotion regulation and identity uh, development. And that's what we see in borderline personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if somebody is born with, as you say, a small amygdala, if there's anything that can be done about that or 
and, and what the prognosis is here. And, and before we get into it, maybe we'll go to break and um, talk about some of the treatments. But for that amygdala, is there any specific treatment, that smaller amygdala? So what we've seen is that uh, some of the treatments we can talk about later on uh, can actually uh, increase uh, blood flow uh, and improve connectivity in parts of the brain uh, that are involved. Uh, now, there isn't a specific study done to show that the amygdala would increase in size again, but uh, definitely with the pathways that they have available in the brain, training them and, and making them more optimized, they can uh, clean up some of the symptoms that they're suffering from. Heal your brain, change your life. My guest is Dr. Karash Adelati. He is the CEO at Elamine Centers for Brain Excellence. And we are talking about borderline personality disorder. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Adelati, for staying on the line. Um, just quickly, you've led a little bit into the symptoms. Um, how is this diagnosed? I'm sure a lot of people out there are thinking they're in a relationship with somebody that has borderline personality disorder, or maybe they have a child who's having particular impulsivity and anger, irritability symptoms. Um, how is this diagnosed? So uh, we have a, a manual of diagnosis called DSM, uh, and it's in the version of five, basically. Um, any personality disorder involves a pervasive pattern. So what it means is that it's been pretty much present for, for a longer period of time. And in the case of borderline personality, we look at uh, per pervasive patterns of instability of relationships, um, self-image, and emotions, as well as seeing um, a lot of impulsivity uh, that started basically early adolescence. And typically, we look at, at the minimum of five symptoms out of a number of symptoms. Um, I did mention them before, um, but I just uh, very briefly uh, go over them again. So, uh, you know, uh, avoiding uh, abandonment. So they, they oftentimes feel they're being abandoned, so they try anything to get rid of that. Um, mm -hmm. Having those rages, unstable emotions. Um, the difficulty with their identity or sense of who they are, um, impulsivity. So they're doing a lot of things that are impulsive. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we know all about uh, those stuff. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, suicidal uh, ideations that are common, uh, commonly seen when they're hopeless, uh, feelings of uh, emptiness. Uh, and finally, uh, very importantly, is... Uh, affective uh, or emotional instability. And so these are, these are what we, we call the symptoms. And usually we look at five of those. And on top of that, anytime we diagnose a mental health disorder, we look at function. So we look at how the individual um, has social functioning, has occupational functioning, or academic functioning. And if those diagnosed individual with uh, borderline uh, personality disorder. Now, having okay. said that, mm -hmm. a lot of people one or uh, two or maybe, you know, people, but not necessarily meeting the threshold. That doesn't mean that they have, uh, they don't have borderline kind of traits, we call that. They may still have a lot of suffering that they're going through, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, they don't just hit that threshold for a borderline personality disorder. 
Right. It's, it sounds like a very tough disorder, very tough diagnosis for the people who have it and the people who love them. Um, what is, are some of the treatments? So uh, oftentimes we use uh, medications for if there's a comorbid condition. So a lot of times people with borderline personality disorder suffer from depression, anxiety, etc. So uh, if they have, uh, you know, we mentioned psychosis, if there is any um, you know, uh, threshold for that, we also prescribe maybe some antipsychotic or mood stabilizers. Um, psychotherapy is commonly we, uh, is one thing we use psychotherapy. You know, we also call it talk therapy, if you want to call it that. Um, a specific psychotherapy called uh, DBT or uh, dialectical behavioral therapy um, is very useful because it teaches uh, individuals with uh, BPD uh, emotion regulation, uh, ability to tolerate stress, and also uh, teaches them skills in mindfulness and uh, you know, how to work in relationships, so kind of interpersonal effectiveness. Uh, that's one type of psychotherapy. Uh, there is uh, groups that are in Vancouver. I know the Vancouver DBT Center has, for example, groups that helps uh, with individuals being able to uh, kind of share their experiences in a more supportive environment while learning about DBT. Uh, I find family therapy is very important uh, for uh, a lot of good reasons because obviously the relationships suffer uh, and individuals want to be in a safe environment expressing themselves uh, and being able to kind of connect with each other because a lot of these relationships are fractured. Uh, and finally, you know, helping with uh, all brain therapies. Uh, from my experience, we've, we've had individuals who have had neurofeedback or neurotherapy as a very effective tool regulating the frontal lobe, um, which oftentimes is involved in emotion regulation. And these are some of the things that we know works really well. Mm-hmm. And is that neurofeedback, is that an electrical stimulation type of procedure? It's actually not an electrical stimulation. It's uh, based on reward and uh, so positive and negative reinforcement, reward and punishment. Oh, okay. It's, it's optimizing the brain's uh, networks based on that kind of uh, learning. So this is for an adult maybe in their 40s or 50s that have been that has been like this, this type of reward? Uh, no, it can actually be used successfully for teenagers as well. So it's not, mm-hmm. I mean, the, it treats the emotion regulation aspect of borderline personality disorder, maybe reduces impulsivity. Um, so some of the symptoms that we see can be um, reduced significantly with this kind of therapy. Outstanding. What is the best way? We're up against the clock here. What's the best way for somebody to get services at Elamine Centers for Brain Excellence? Um, just go to our website, uh, elamine.com, and um, book an appointment, and we'll be happy Wonderful. to uh, help. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Adelotti. Really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Maureen. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.